0: This morning we're in Psalm 89. I want to begin with two words. Semper Fidelis or Semper Fi. You may know these words. It's the marine motto. It means always faithful. The word faithful, consistent, dependable, reliable, trustworthy. You can count on it. Why? Why is that motto even necessary? You ever thought about that? Shouldn't it just go without saying? Like, shouldn't we want to be faithful? Shouldn't we want to be dependable? Shouldn't we want to be reliable? And what if this wasn't your your motto? Is it okay to not be faithful, to not be reliable? So why is this even necessary? And I would argue because people are unfaithful. Because people are unreliable. Because we, believe it or not, you are unfaithful. You are reliable. You are undependable. Now, if we were faithful, it, it wouldn't be the norm. You think, oh well, I'm I'm faithful, I'm dependable, really? How many times have you said you would be somewhere five o'clock and you get there at five fifteen, five thirty, or don't show up at all? How many times have you told someone you would pray for them and you never did? How many times have you fallen short on your own expectations for yourself, let alone what you portray to others? How fickle we are. How unfaithful we are. And think, really, is it easier for us to keep our word or to break it? Is it easier to do what we say we're going to do or not? We are an unfaithful people. Now we take the gloves off and we ask real questions. How faithful have you been to the God who created you and sustained you? Maybe even piercing a little bit further. We can say that God is faithful, but do we trust his faithfulness? Really? Do we trust the triune God of the Bible? Maybe his faithfulness is hard to trust because we're so consumed with our own unfaithfulness. Maybe because our eyes are so fixed on everything around us that lets us down. Everything around us is unfaithful. Everything sooner or later will let us down. And we assume God can't be that good. God can't be that faithful. He will let us down eventually. That's why this psalm is so important, especially in our time. Because God is faithful. And in this psalm, in Psalm 89, the word faithfulness is repeated seven times. Just like steadfast love. Also repeated seven times. His faithfulness and his love that does not fail is repeated often. So the word faithfulness in the Hebrew, it means uh, firmness. It means steadfastness, steadiness, firmness, meaning immovable, does not shake, does not move. And so it doesn't have a moral quality yet. The the word itself is stable, kind of like concrete. Uh, This came to mind because I had concrete poured in my house this week and once the concrete cures, it is firm. It is steady. I can trust in it. I can jump on it. I can do a backflip. I can. I, it will not move. Yes, I can do a backflip. In, into the pool, though. cannot do it on dry ground. And it won't let me down. But it eventually will. It will eventually crack and it will eventually crumble. Even the most sturdy thing that we can put together with our own two hands will fail us. But when you apply the concept of faithfulness to a person, then it portrays this ethical quality of consistency, reliability, immovability, immutability. If you are a faithful person, you are reliable, you are steadfast, you are immovable. What if we apply this term to a perfect and holy God? A God who is steadfast, a God who is immovable, a God who is unchanging, a God who is unshakable. This is what the psalmist gets at this morning. This is the nature of our God. He is forever faithful. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says about this. A God who is faithful is a God who what he promises, he performs. What he promises, he performs. We can take his word to the bank. We can trust it because he is steady, because he is unchanging. Our God is so steady that we can trust him like we can trust that four comes after three. And that Thursday comes after Wednesday. He's the whole reason we can expect any kind of order in the universe. That is our God. He put things into order. So should we so quickly forget when it feels like our lives are out of order? When it feels like things aren't as they should be, that we can... Trust in Him. So that's why this psalm is so perfect for our time. Now, we can't get to the entire psalm. It's a long psalm. And so we're going to break it into three weeks, actually. And so the outline of the psalm, uh, we're dealing this week with the covenant. Earlier, I mentioned that this refers back to God's covenant with David. So we're going to deal with the covenant in verses 1 through 18. Next week, we're going to deal with the, the, the Christ, the anointed one of the covenant in verses 19 through 37. And then in the last week, we're going to deal with the complaint. And this is why this is helpful for us now. Because for 37 verses, the psalmist is praising God for his faithfulness. And then in verse 38, he admits his doubt. God, I know all these things about you. I know these things to be true. But right now, it doesn't feel like it. And so we're going to deal with that in week three. What happens when our faith and our feelings clash with one another? And so this is one of the rare psalms, Psalm 89, that has a clear reference Meaning that it refers directly back to uh, the God's covenant with David as its basis. And it appeals to it really within our first four verses and, and throughout the psalm. And so what we're going to be doing in this, we're going to balance the uh, redemptive aspect with the historical aspect. How the, the history, how this applies to Israel as a nation and the prophecy that, that looks forward. So first, in the historical view, which we'll look at throughout, the historical view of God's covenant is the character of the higher king who makes a covenant or an agreement with a lower king and how the character of the higher king is projected on the lower king. His throne and his power informs the character and fate of the lower king and the, the king that he covenants with. And so on the historical perspective, this is going to deal with God's relationship with the nation of Israel. To save and protect them from enemies. So there's a a very real, present, and tangible aspect to this covenant. There are very real enemies out there who want to kill them. And so they appeal to the God of this covenant to protect them against their enemies. But there's also a redemptive view of God's covenant. Because the promise to David that he would have an offspring on his throne forever. There's something missing. There's something lacking because the kings are wicked. And the kings are failing and Israel is in shambles at this point. And so the redemptive nature of the covenant is through David's line, through his historical progeny. There's a line, a king will come and he will save them, but not just from enemies. He will save them from sins and he will save them forever up to the utmost. And so we're going to walk this balance as we get into our Psalms. If you have your Bibles, please open to Psalm 89. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, and I encourage you to read through the entire psalm. Psalm 89, beginning in verse 1. A maskil of Ethan the Ezrahite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, Steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty right arm. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne steadfast love and faithfulness go before you blessed are the people who know the festal shout who walk O lord in the light of your face who exalt in your name all day and in your righteousness are exalted for you are the glory of their strength by your favor our horn is exalted for our shield belongs to the lord our king to the holy one of israel let's pray O Lord, our God, you are a holy God. You are righteous and you are just. You are, ma- you are mighty. You are high and lifted up. You have dominion over all things. You rule with a strong right hand. And that you are loving and faithful and compassionate and patient and merciful and gracious to us who are wicked and unfaithful. Thank you, God, that in your divine plan, your promise to David was fulfilled to us through the person and work of Christ. Thank you for sending your son as our king to fulfill your covenant when human kings could not keep it. So that we would know your steadfast love forever, so that we would know your faithfulness. You are a holy and faithful God. I pray that your word encourages your people this morning. I pray that anyone who does not know you, who is still holding on to the throne of their heart, that you would break them, that your spirit would work within them, that they may repent and turn to you and praise your glorious grace, that you are faithful, that you are just, that you are good, that you are righteous, and you are worthy to be praised, and you are to be trusted. You are firm and steadfast. And empower your people to stand firm and steadfast in you in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we deal with this psalm this morning, you won't have a bulletin. You won't have an outline, obviously. So our sermon outline this morning, verses 1 through 4, praise for the covenant. Praising the God of the covenant. Verses 5 through 14, the perfections of the God of the covenant. Not just praising God for the covenant itself, but recognizing what type of God has, has covenanted with his people. And then the final verses, 15 through 18, the people of the covenant. So let's open up Psalm 89, a masque of Ethan the Israelite. Uh, Ethan the Israelite is mentioned a few times in the Bible. He is He is mentioned as the wisest man in Israel right under Solomon. So he's he was a uh, he was around the time of David and Solomon kind of in both rules. And so we don't think that the psalm was written during that time. And like many of the psalms, the, the psalms of Asaph and the Korahites, it was probably one of his descendants. Uh, who is writing under his name out of the, the, the family lineage. But this is a wise man in a wise family who is now interceding for Israel in their time of difficulty. And so, again, we'll get there in week three. So, in the first four verses, we get our theme by what we see repeated. As we say so often, where the Bible repeats words, we should pay attention. What are the things we see? I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we see steadfast love come up in verse one and verse two. Forever comes up three times. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. For I said, the steadfast love will be built up forever. Verse four, I will establish your offspring forever. God is steadfast forever. Also, we see faithfulness repeated. The end of verse one, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. In the heavens, verse 2, you establish your faithfulness. Throughout the psalm, seven times, God is a God of steadfast love. God is a God who is faithful. Eight times, God is a God who keeps his covenant forever. This is the theme, praising the God of steadfast love, the God of faithfulness, who is faithful forever. And it all surrounds around thanking him for the covenant. The covenant that he made with David that secures the protection and the lineage of Israel. And this is what... The psalmist is praising him for. This is where he begins. Even in the time of trouble. Even when Israel is in a mess right now. Keep reading to the end. You'll get that. But what is most foremost in the psalmist's mind. Is that God. Is a covenantal God. Who keeps his promises to his people. So he begins with. I will sing of the steadfast love. Of the Lord forever. I will sing. I love what Star- Charles Spurgeon says about this. Since S-E-N-C-S-E, sense sings now and then, but faith is an eternal songster. Sense sings now and then, but faith is an eternal songster. I guess sense, C-E-N-T-S, makes sense as well. But sense meaning, oh, if I understand this, I could sing, oh, thank you, God, because this makes sense in my head at the moment. But when it stops making sense, I stop singing. What Spurgeon is saying, if you have faith, you are an eternal songster. Because if you truly trust in the Lord, there is no shortage of things to sing about. And then a play on words here, C-E-N-T-S, if it makes sense, if you get a couple bucks in your pocket and, and you start to, to, to rub the bills together or you, you start to get confident in your bank account, you can sing for that. But you sing the same in poverty. You sing the same when you don't have the same confidence in your mouth. I, I love Spurgeon's approach to this because as people of faith, we ought to be people of song. Why does he sing? Why does the psalmist sing? Because he knows the steadfast love of the Lord and he knows it's on him. It is on God's people. God is faithful. I will praise a faithful God because if you have a God who is firm, who is unchanging, who is immovable, what else could you do but praise him? God is faithful forever. And the same thing should be for us. Remember it, rest in it, celebrate it. This is why we sing. This is why we are people of song because our God is worthy of our praises. I want to quote Spurgeon at length here. He goes on. And this is so appropriate to our times. Listen to to his words. Because God is and ever will be faithful, we have a throne, we have a theme for song which will not be out of date for future generations. It will never be worn out, never be disproved, never be unnecessary, never be an idle subject. It will also always It will also be always desirable to make it known. Sound familiar? Look what comes next. For men are too apt to forget it or doubt it when hard times press upon them. Skeptics are so ready to repeat old doubts and invent new ones. Amen to that. That believers should be equally prompt to bring forth evidences both old and new. We are to remind ourselves and remind the world that our God is faithful. Our God is unchanging, even when the skeptics in the world around us changes. And we should always be ready to give this defense. And now is the time. When the world is looking for answers and the world is is frantic and and doubting everything that they, they thought was real, we have something that is real. We have something that is unshakable. Our God has given us plenty of evidences of his faithfulness. And we should be his people to sing His faithfulness with our mouths, make it known his faithfulness to all generations, not just in that generation or in Spurgeon's generation or in our generation. But every generation until the Lord returns should proclaim his faithfulness. For I said, steadfast love, verse two, will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. Why steadfast love set up in the heavens? Because everything on earth lets us down. We look to the God of heaven because everything on earth fails us. And if we're honest, we far too often project our earthly failures on a heavenly God. We far too often project everything we see around us that lets us down on a God who never has and never will if we are in him. We must look to the God of heaven because earth is passing away. He continues on. You have said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. Again, covenant and agreement. Greater king to a lesser king. I want you to pay attention to three words here. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. You know, it's interesting about all three of those words. They are all singular. It's not talking about many kings. It's not talking about a line of kings. In the prophetic, this is seen as one king. One offspring. And spoiler alert, this will be all next week. This points to Christ. There is one offspring that fulfills all of this. And we see this again in Galatians chapter 3. What's interesting about Galatians chapter 3 is that Paul references another covenant a covenant that God made with Abraham. And God's covenant with Abraham is that he would be a father of many nations, his people would have a land forever, that he would have um, descendants forever. And the promise was to an offspring. But Paul peels back the curtain of God's covenantal promises. And look what he says in Galatians chapter three, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, just like in our song, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. What Paul's getting at here is God made a promise to David, to Abraham. Nothing that comes after will make God's promises fail because it is God himself, the faithful God, who makes a promise. And so much so, that God took on flesh to become the promise fulfillment. To come through the line of David, to be the rightful king, to be the rightful heir so that that covenant could go on forever. That will be the focus of next week. And so what we see here is that the name of David, the throne of David, the reputation of David is connected to David's God. This covenant relationship with God and his people historically. So I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And Israel was thinking as they, they could. The throne that they saw in Jerusalem, but they couldn't see that far in the future. They couldn't understand that God would send his son to be the eternal king. Reign on a spiritual throne among spiritual people, the descendants of Abraham through faith. And this section ends with Selah. Now normally we just skip over these. These are kind of musical directives for the psalmist. But this is a great point. It means to stop, to pause, to think. This is truly a moment of rest. Pause. Stop here. God is faithful. God is a God of steadfast love. God forever keeps his covenant. And to make sure he took on flesh so that he would keep it, rest in that. We ought to stop and pause every time we remember who our God is and what he has done. God is forever faithful. What he promises, he performs. Next section. Picking up in verse 5, we're going to see the perfections of our God. And the perfections of this God of the covenant. And it supports his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. It begins, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy Ones. So the Holy Ones here, uh, saints, those set apart. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the Holy Ones. And awesome above all who who are around him. Verses 5 through 7 here, the first aspect of God's character is his highness. In both sense of the word, his highness, as in the sovereign ruler, but his highness, is as he is above everything else. The psalmist begins in the heights. The highest there is, far above all rule and authority, are you, God. And what's interesting is that in the highness, there's a council, the divine council. Look at the terms that are used here. So on earth, you have the assembly of the holy ones. But in, in the heavens, they praise the Lord. Who in the sky, so there are beings that dwell in the sky. Who among the heavenly beings, those heavenly beings is like the Lord. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. What we don't understand and what we, we, we miss in our temporal sight And we see in other passages of scripture that there are amazing beings that surround the throne of God. Hosts of heavenly angels, the cherubim and the seraphim. You think there's beautiful creatures here on earth? God has created heavenly beings we can't even understand. Beautiful beings that surround him and cry holy, holy, holy and worship him. The most beautiful of all his creation surrounds his throne and they can't compare to him. They worship him. This is who the God of the covenant is. These spiritual beings that, that, that fly outside of our sight and outside of our, our purview that surround the throne of God. They worship. How awesome is he? His highness in verses 5 through 7. His mightiness in verses 8 through 10. O oh Lord God of hosts. Who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So what we see here is that his might, his strength, and his faithfulness, and his firmness, and his dependability make him incomparable. There is none like you, O Lord. First in verse 8, his mightiness is all around. We're going to see this, this transition from the heights. He is high. The, the, the heavenly angels, the heavenly beings worship you. But even on earth, there is no power. Even the raging seas that you can't stop, that you are not stronger than You are the God of heaven and the God of earth. Your might and your faithfulness is all around you. Meaning everything is encompassed by it. Everything, you are known by what goes out from you. And that power of the raging sea when its waves rise, you still them. The things that we're so fearful of. If you've ever been on a ship or out in the water when the storms come, there is is nothing to hold on to. There is nothing to look to because if your boat tips over, you are dead. You are done. And it is completely outside of your control. But our God stills the waters. Does it sound familiar? Jesus when he was on the boat with his fearful disciples and he's sleeping because he's not worried why should he be they are are fearful in their hearts because they can't predict the sea and it scares them and he wakes up and rebukes the waves this is the basis for Jesus's rebuke he was showing them his deity who else can calm the seas they asked themselves the question but they didn't make the connection when we read this, it should point us to the God who took on flesh and reminded us so often, I am the God of all creation and I can put the waters to cease. Also, verse 10 you crushed Rahab like a carcass. Now, at first reading, you're like, oh, wait a second. I've read the book of Joshua. I know Rahab, the nice prostitute lady who uh, let them up in, in the window and, and saved them. And why did he crush Rahab? She just happens to have a very unfortunate name. Uh, this, this refers to sea monster. It often refers to, uh, Egypt. And so they use a slang term for Egypt. This, this word means the arrogant one. And so her name, unfortunately, is arrogant one. But, and so when, when God says, or when the psalmist says, you crush Rahab like a carcass, this is a, this is a polemic against Egypt. Meaning, this is an argument against the false nation and the false gods of Egypt. You crushed Rahab, you crushed the mighty sea monster, the arrogant one, you put them to death, and scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. This is what is speaking to. So God's might is against the powers of the, of the earth, the natural forces, but against the principalities of the earth, the the earth, the nations. So we get his we get his highness. We get his mightiness. Verse 11, we get his dominion. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. Look at the repetition here. The heavens, yours. The earth, yours. The world, yours. All that is in it, yours. There is nothing outside of your control, nothing outside of your ownership. Oh God, you have dominion over all things. The north and the south, these are representative of everything. The north, the south, the east, the west. As far as you look to the north, as far as you look to the south, as far as north is north, as far as south is south, it's yours. Nothing is outside of your control and your ownership. And then he gets into specifics here. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Well, if you don't know what those are, that means nothing to you. These are two mountains in Israel. And so one, Tabor is a small mountain. Modest mountain. It's about 2,000 feet. Hermon is a great, mighty mountain, 9,000 feet. Mountains always, uh, symbolize firmness and strength. And so even the mountains praise you, the little and the great, the small mountains and the big mountains, the highly exalted and the humble, the high and the lowly praise you. The north and the south is yours. The high and the lowly praise you. Everyone comes before you. There is nothing, even the mightiest mountain, that will not bow down to you because you own it and you are worthy of its praise. That is the God of the covenant. He continues with his rule in verse 13 and 14. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high as your right hand. How do we describe the rule of God? Now, because we don't use these terms, because we don't have a king, we don't really understand what these mean. But think about this for just a moment. You have a mighty arm. And the Bible speaks of an arm. It is reach. My arm reaches out. Your arm, God, you have a mighty arm. You reach out to the ends of the earth. There is nothing that is outside of your reach. You have a mighty reach. And also, strong is your hand. When you think about a hand, the hand means power. You have long dominion. You also have powerful dominion. And high is your right hand. High meaning exalted. Nothing higher. High up there above everything else. And then right hand is authority. You are a God of reach. You are a God of power. You are a God of highness. And you are a God of authority. That's what your rule encompasses. That is your kingship. That's what type of king you are. And so but we have to be careful. Because so many people read the Old Testament and stop Here. And if you just stop at 13, the God of highness, the God of mightiness, the God of dominion, the God of rule, then you get this great authoritarian imposing God. But we don't stop there. The God of the old is the God of the new. He is unchanging. He is immovable. Verse 14 cannot be divorced from verse 13. Verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. These two verses show us the full kingship of God. He is mighty. He is strong. He is, author- he is authoritative. He is powerful. But he is also righteous and just and loving and faithful. Let's look at these words quickly. Righteousness. Uprightness. It is the character the, the character. Of the individual. It's his character that drives his decisions. You are righteous and you, and justice are the foundation of your throne. Justice is making right decisions. Justice is having judgment. So God's trustworthiness and his judgment go hand in hand. You are right and you do right. His character to make the right decisions and the ability to carry, to, to carry it out. He is a God who is powerful and always makes the right decision. Always does what is just. Always does what is true. And it is because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Just like righteousness and justice go together. So does steadfast love and faithfulness. This is his ethical character. And these cannot be separated. Righteousness from steadfast love cannot be separated. Justice from faithful cannot be separated. He is all of them. He is perfect in all of them. Completely combined together. They are all part of his character. He is faithful in his steadfast love. What we must know about God is he is mighty and he is powerful. But he is, care, but he is caring and he is consistent. He is caring and he is consistent. And look what the psalmist says here. It's easy to just skip by this. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness go before you. Well, we just, it's easy to just read on, right? But when you speak of a king, what goes before him? A processional. And so, again, we don't have a king, we don't understand this, but when a king would travel, there would be people in front of him who would carry his banner. His armies would go before him, the, the trumpeters and those who are celebrating along with him. Those who declare who he is go before him. The processional of our king is his righteousness and his justice. His steadfast love and his faithfulness. That is the processional. That is the army that goes before him. The band that goes before him. The banners that fly before him. Every time we see righteousness and justice and steadfast love and faithfulness, we see our king. Our king is not far behind because those are characteristics of our king. This is the God of the covenant. He is not just a mighty ruler and a righteous judge. He is a benevolent king. And so the covenant is to be celebrated. The king is to be celebrated, but the people are blessed because of the covenant. This is where we find ourselves in the close. Our final section, 15 through 18. The people are blessed because of who their God is. You can't skip the second part. You can't just say, God, thank you for the covenant. And now what about me? We must spend the appropriate bulk of this psalm on who God is and what he has done. All the characteristics of our God. Because once you understand who the God is, and if that God would make a covenant with you, we are blessed. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Let me just clear up a couple things, and then I want to look at this progression that happens in verse 15 and 16. A couple things. The festal shout. So when the festivals would happen, we've covered them many times. There's three major festivals in the life of Israel. They would come and they would come shouting and rejoicing. But this is also very specific to the the context of the covenant with David. Because in chapter 7, he's praising the Lord for the covenant. But in chapter 6... The Ark comes into Jerusalem for the first time. The Ark resides in his house. And this is where David is indignant. This is where David makes a fool of himself by dancing and shouting. Now, we have to understand the context of that. David is so amazed. He is so overjoyed that the very presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant would dwell in his house that he throws off all social conventions. I don't care if I make a fool of myself. God is dwelling in my house. For those of you who know the festal shout, he shouted and danced in a very indignified way. The presence of God made it into his city, into his house, and he celebrated. How much more for us? The presence of God is no longer in an ark, it is in our hearts. Our God has made his tabernacle, his dwelling with us. If David, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, would dance around in his underwear, in front of all of his subjects. How beautiful that display is. What should how should we respond? No, don't do the same thing. Don't jump around in your underwear. But we should be people who are known for celebration. We should be people who are known for joy. Because God sent his son to die on a cross for our sins to reconcile us to him. And he left and sent his spirit to seal that within us and dwell within us so that we may know his faithfulness. We may know his steadfast love. We may know the festival shout. We are the people of the covenant. If you are indeed in Christ Jesus, we are the people of celebration. For those who know the festival shout, the same God who dwelt among Israel dwells in us. What cause we have for celebration. You are blessed if you know that. Second thing I want us to look at here is you're blessed if you know the festal shout. You are blessed if you walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. The celebration of God's presence and the walking in the light of his face are synonymous. You cannot truly know the festal shout, knowing what it means that God has made a covenant with you, that God dwells in you, and you not walk in the light of his face. That would be foolish and stupid. That would be completely neglecting what God has done. You mean that God, the mighty God who calms the waters and who the angels worship. He made a covenant with me. How could I not walk in the light of his face? And his light is his blessing and his favor and everything good that he shines on his people. We have no choice. This is a response to God's covenant love and faithfulness. I want you to see the progression here in verse 15 and 16. Look at what is repeated. Blessed are those who know the festival shout, who walk in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and who are exalted in your righteousness. Look at this. This still describes the people of God. They know who God is. They walk in his light. They exalt him, and they are exalted by him. If you are in Christ, if you know this covenant God, because because his king came into time and space, into David's lineage and brought you into his family. If you are part of that family, if you know that king, you know, the festival shout, your heart is filled with joy because God has sent his son to covenant with you. Walk in his righteousness, exalt in earnestness and know that he has exalted you in his righteousness. This is beautiful. We don't need to lift ourselves up because God exalts us. We know this is only possible through the righteousness of Christ. It is only by the righteous one. It is never on our righteousness. It is his righteousness who exalts us. And how much better that Christ would die. Christ would come first to fulfill this. Coming from the line of David to be the king of the Jews, to be the king of Israel, and then die so that we might take on his righteousness. That we might be saved from our sin, that he would take on our wretchedness. And we take on his righteousness and God exalts his righteous because his son has exalted him in his sacrifice. Verse 17, for you are the God of their strength. Excuse me, for you are the glory of their strength. You're also the God of their strength. For you are the glory of their strength. There is nothing in the knowing, the walking, the exalting, the righteousness that comes from them. Look at the words here. You are the glory of their strength and the favor and the exaltation. Glory, strength, favor and exaltation. These are all characteristics that are not intrinsic, meaning within man himself. They are characteristics of God given to man. They come from his righteous account. That's what it means that God covenants with his people. Because a wicked, unfaithful people, they are given glory and strength and favor and exaltation because they belong to their God and those characteristics belong to their God. This is what it means that God covenants with his people. Not just life being a little better, but that God forms us into his image that we may truly be the Imago Dei and and reflect him. For who he is. And he is the one who exalts. By your favor, our horn is exalted. Horn, we've talked about this before, comes out of the head of an animal. Our horn, our head is exalted through him. He exalts people. We don't need to exalt ourselves. But I want us to think about this. What do we lift to? If we think about all the characteristics we've just covered and the God of the covenant, what do we look, look to to lift our heads? What do we look to to lift our horn, our pride? What makes us feel good about ourselves? Do we look to the glory of God, to his strength, to his grace, for him to lift us? Or is it our career? Or is it the validation of the people we look up to? Is it our possessions? Is it our clothes? Even a new haircut. Those of us who, those of us who can get haircuts. You know. Likes, video game scores. How many things do we pat ourselves on the back for? Look what I've done. I'm holding my head high because I'm exalting myself. But Where do we find our exaltation? The God who is the glory of our strength. The God whose grace exalts his people. And finally here, this is the transition between next week and this week. For our shield... Belongs to the Lord, verse 18, our king to the Holy One of Israel. Here the shield is referring to the king, protection. The God of protection, the God who is their shield, sends them a human shield as his representative. You have given us a king to protect us. We're reminding you of this, O God. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. The king is from the Lord, serves the Lord. The king serves on behalf of the true king. The shield protects on behalf of the true protector. This is going to be the appeal because as the king goes, the nation goes. And we're going to see next week in the week after the state of Israel because of their king. So here, here I want to conclude with a couple thoughts. We serve a faithful God. And we have to give this. on to bring it full circle. We can't understand how faithful God is unless we know how unfaithful we are. You are unfaithful. You cannot keep your promises. Period. We can celebrate and praise him because of his steadfast love. Because he is faithful. And he has assured us forever through his offspring. Through the throne of David. Through the righteous son, he is high, he is mighty, he has dominion, he has rule. He is righteous and he is just and he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. It is through him that we are reconciled to a faithful and holy God. And we should celebrate that. But if you don't serve him, you must know how faithful, unfaithful you are. You must know how unrighteous you are. If you are trusting in your own strength, if you're trying to lift your own head, you must know that there is not enough muscles in your neck to lift your head high enough to the God who reigns over the heavenly hosts. Your only hope is in his steadfast love. Your only hope is to appeal to the covenant through his son. Your only hope is his righteousness, his faithfulness, because you are not able to keep in a covenant. You cannot keep an agreement with God. Only God can keep an agreement with God. That is why Christ took on flesh. So just leave you with this. I want you to think about this. You can either be under the wrath of the God who crushed Rahab, who calms the seas. Who commands the angel armies. Where you could be under his covenant love through his son. And his forever faithfulness. Because of his righteousness and his work on your behalf. Please think on this and I hope it pierces your heart this morning. If you know it, celebrate it and rest in it. If you don't, repent and turn to it. Let's pray and respond to our faithful God. God, we praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your steadfast love. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your righteousness. We praise you for your mightiness, for your highness, for your holiness. For your dominion and your power and your rule and authority. Your goodness and your grace and your mercy toward us. A God who condescends to his people. A God who makes a covenant we could never keep. A God who keeps a covenant we did not deserve. A God who took on flesh to unite himself to his people. sent his spirit to seal them and confirm it. We praise you, God. and We pray that your name is exalted above all the nations. If there's any exaltation in us, let it come from you. You are the lifter of our heads. Your grace is what empowers us. We look to you. We praise you. We bow down before you. The only true and right King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.